Well, we certainly do live in uncertain times right now, don't we? I know if you're like me and you uh, on social media, so many people were so excited for the end of 2020. As many have said, like, I've, I don't think I've ever seen so many people so excited to be done with an old year and on to the new. And there was this great sense of optimism moving towards 2021. Finally, the things, the year things will go right. The things will get better. And then this last week happened here in our country and everyone's like, well, Maybe it's not going to be much better than it was last year. And the only thing certain about right now is the uncertainty that exists, right? That we don't really have a lot of ideas on exactly what life is going to look like. And often in uncertainty, th- things can just feel out of control. We, we're not quite sure what to do with ourselves. And so as, as I was praying and our team here at Sunday Night Service was thinking about, man, what, what can we do during this new year to help us focus our hearts on God? What we're going to do at the, at the start of this year for the next several weeks is we're going to look at the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. Now, I would invite you to, to grab a Bible or, or open your phone and turn to the book of Malachi. It's easy to find because it's the last book of your Old Testament, the very last book of the Old Testament. And the book of Malachi is a book that, as we're going to discover, was written to people who found themselves in kind of uncertain times. This is a very unique season for God's people. And I've been studying this book for several weeks now, and I've been so encouraged. And my heart and my prayer for you is that as we open God's word together the next several weeks, that you too will be encouraged by the message from this book that many of us or most of us probably have not spent much time reading and studying together. So the book of Malachi, starting in chapter one, verse one says this, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So the author of this book is quite simple, right? It's, it's a guy named Malachi. His name literally means my messenger, right? Or it could be God, he is God's messenger. We know nothing else really about Malachi from scripture. There's no references to him in any other place. This name never occurs in any other place throughout scripture, just in this book. So he's a messenger of God. He brings here, it says, an oracle of the word of the Lord. This is a word that often pronounced prophetic judgment typically on people. Typically, it was a critical word that God would bring towards people. And this book here is the last book in the Old Testament. Like I said, it's the last of actually what are called the minor prophets. Now, the minor prophets are not called that because they're insignificant, but simply because they are shorter than some of the other prophetic books. And these start in the book of Hosea and they go all the way to the end of our current Old Testament to the book of Malachi. These are prophetic books of the Old Testament. So what is the the timing? What's the setting here of this book in which Malachi writes? It's interesting because there's no historical markers or references here at the beginning of the book. Many times in the Old Testament, prophets would say that the author of Malachi who prophesies during the reign of so-and-so. That was their historical markers. They would reference the kings or the seasons, the, the time in which they lived. But Malachi does not do that. 
But we know, given from the context of the book, what he's writing about, as well as a few helpful clues throughout the book, that Malachi is what we would call a post-exilic prophet. Or this, Malachi writes after God's people have been in exile and then come back to the land. So if you know the history of the nation of Israel, if you kind of go back once they were in the land, the kings came, that's like um, David and Solomon. After that, the kingdom split. And eventually at the end of that, because of their disobedience, they were taken into exile, right? They were taken out of the land. But then after a period of time, they had returned back to Israel, back to the promised land. And there's three books in the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, that reference that are dirt, take place during this season after the exile. We also know this because down in, verse, or in chapter 1, verse 8, it talks about a governor, a governor in the land, which was a Persian word. So we know that this book took place after Cyrus the Persian had allowed the Jews to go back to the land. The governor, we don't know who it was for sure. Zerubbabel was a governor of the land. Nehemiah was a governor of the land. This book quite possibly, though not definitively, but quite possibly takes place during Nehemiah's time in Israel, quite possibly during the season in which he is away from Jerusalem. This book has a unique style in which it's written. It, it's what scholars call rhetorical disputations. Now that's two kind of fancy words put together. I certainly did not come up with those, right? But rhetorical disputa disputations, I can't even say it correctly. But basically it means this, that the book is set up as kind of six arguments where a statement will be made and then kind of the rhetorical comeback will be to it. And then the prophet comes back with the argument to it. He's not actually arguing with someone. He's not having a crisis of identity, but it's a, a way of argumentation that is a very powerful force and a powerful tool throughout the book. And that's how the entire book is set up basically is in this way of argumentation. The audience, who's he writing it to? He's writing it to God's people. He's writing it to Israel. And after the exile, Israel would have been a, a country, God's people, who had been made all these extravagant promises of God, right? Of blessing and of prosperity. And the people are looking around and they're just not seeing it. They're, they're not seeing the immediate answers to these promises. And what's happening in the season in which Malachi writes is that the people are starting to drift. They're drifting away from God. They're drifting into spiritual apathy. And this book of Malachi is to be a wake-up call to the people of Israel. A wake-up call to the people of Israel. And we've titled this series Wake Up Call because I hope that this is a wake-up call to us as well. If we are experiencing a season of drift, of apathy because of the uncertainty, the circumstances in which we live. And to start to address this, he dives right in in verse 2. And he talks in this first section that we're going to look at tonight about God's love for his people. He starts there because of this. The root of spiritual apathy, the root of spiritual drifting away from God is forgetting God's love. 
the root, the, the, the root of spiritual apathy is forgetting how much God indeed loves us. And so that's why tonight we're going to dive into this passage about how much God loves his people. So chapter one, verse two says this, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, that's the rhetorical argument back, but you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Tonight, as we look at just the first five verses, we're going to see three characteristics of God's love in this passage. And the first characteristic is this, is that God's love is unchanging. God's love for his people is unchanging. It is a constant, a consistent love for his people. Now, God has always been a God of love for his people. There is an argument from some people that that try and say the God of scripture is actually two different gods. And that the God of the Old Testament, of which Malachi is the last book, is a God of justice, a God of wrath. And the God of the New Testament is a God of love and a God of forgiveness. Well, this is simply not true. It's not reading scripture as a whole. See, God's love has always been fundamental in his relationship with his people. God's love has been fundamental. It's at the core of his relationship with his people. And he starts with this declaration, I have loved you as a reminder of his unchanging love towards his people. See, so often throughout scripture, when it talks about in the Old Testament particular about the love of God, it talks about his steadfast love, his steadfast love. And it highlights that over and over and over again about the unchanging nature of God's love towards his people. Perhaps one of the strongest scriptural arguments for the unchanging love of God is in the first of the minor prophets that we have in the Old Testament in the book of Hosea, where Hosea, the prophet of God, is told to go and to marry a woman who is known to be one who commits adultery. So he marries her. She has children with him, but then she leaves him. She's publicly humiliating him and sleeping around with other men. And there's this powerful verse in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, where it says this, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love the woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Now get this, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other God. Well, even though God loves them, even though they turn towards other gods, God is a God of love, of unchanging love towards his people. Even when they were unfaithful, even when they walked away, his love towards them never changed. And so the people ask this question, this rhetorical question, which would have represented the hearts of the people. How have you loved us? Can you, can you almost catch the, the skepticism? And they're looking around them and they're saying, look around. Look at what we once were. Look at what we are now. God, how can you say that you have loved us? See, the people didn't feel, they didn't see the love of God when they looked at their circumstances. They didn't see it around them. But just because they couldn't see the love of God doesn't mean that God's love for them had 
changed. It didn't mean God's love for them had stopped. Over the holiday season, um, a little while ago, I was able, my wife and I and our daughter were able to travel and spend some time with one of our best friends. They're, they're a family and they have a young girl who's about two and a half years old, I believe. And she had never met our daughter, who's now seven months old, our, our daughter, Aria. And she was so excited, so excited, right? At two and a half to play with our daughter. And you can just imagine, right? They're running and she's showing her all of her toys and she wants to get down and hold her and to be next to her and to play with her. And, and we visited and had such a great time with them. And then after lunch came the time where her parents told her, hey, listen, we're going to let Aria go take a nap and we're going to make you go take a nap as well. Oh, you thought the world was about to end. She did not want to go take a nap. And it was almost hilarious. So it was hilarious because I wasn't having to deal with it, right? As we, we sat out in the other room and we heard her just crying tears. And the only words that I could make out through the tears once in a while were, baby Aria, blah, blah, blah baby Aria. She wanted so bad to play and she couldn't understand why her parents wouldn't let her play, why her parents were punishing her and making her go to bed. But see, we know that why does a parent make her kid stop playing and why does the parent put their kid down for a nap? It's because of their love. They know what's best for their child, even though the child does not understand it. And they want to push back and fight, but the parent loves the child and that's why they do it anyways. See, just as a parent knows the loving thing to do for their child, even though the child doesn't understand it, God knows the loving thing to do towards us, even often when we don't understand what he is doing. See, God's love for us is always love, even when we don't feel it. And so if we are like the people of Israel now, if maybe you're looking at this week, this Sunday in 2021, you're looking around and you would say this, God, how have you loved us? God, how have you loved me? We can be confident of God's unchanging love for us, even in circumstances that we don't understand. Because God's love is rooted in his infinite wisdom, not in your temporary understanding. See, you, you look at the world through your lens and you might not understand what God's doing. You might not understand or see what God is doing, but that doesn't mean his love for you has changed because God's love for us is based, is based in his infinite wisdom, not in just our temporal understanding of things. So as we ask that question tonight, be reminded of God's unchanging love for us, that he's a God who has always loved us, even when we don't feel it. And so they ask this rhetorical question in verse two, how have you loved us? The prophet responds, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. The second characteristic of God's love that we see in this passage is that God's love is unconditional. God's love towards his people is an unconditional love. 
Now we're introduced very quickly here to two characters, two people named Jacob and Esau. If you're not familiar with these characters, they are central characters, central men from the book of Genesis. They were born as children of the promise, as twins. Esau was born just before Jacob. Yet because of God's love, because of God's choosing, he chose that the the covenant would pass down through Jacob and not through Esau. So they are real men who existed and lived in the time of Genesis. And this this phrase here that sometimes can get caught up on us, right? Because we read it just at service value. I love Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And we could say, wait, God's hating people? Like what, what kind of God do you believe in? So this is a, a, a word here, love and hate, given in this context when talking about this, that doesn't mean love and hate as an emotional feeling like how you and I typically use the words love and hate. It's clearly here talking about a relationship that God has with his people. Scholars say, you could almost say it this way, yet I have chosen Jacob, but Esau I have not chosen. And we know that this is the case because this is how these same two men in this same verse is used other places in scripture. In fact, this verse is quoted later on in actually the book of Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, when speaking on how God has chosen his people for salvation, it says this, starting in verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's the exact quote of this passage here in Malachi chapter one. And so God is a God who chooses people unconditionally for his plans to be his people and does not choose others. It's covenantal language, which we see here from being applied by Paul in the book of Romans, applies to you and to me today. That God chooses some as his unconditional for salvation, that he would pour out his blessings on them. See, sometimes when we think of the doctrine of what is called the doctrine of predestination, or doctrine of election, of God choosing people to be in a relationship with him. We could think of it as being a very cold and a very callous thing. Like it's just something that, that God does and, he, and there, there's no thought put into it. There, it's just a heartless thing. But in scripture, God's election of people and God's love for them is closely tied together. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says this, starting in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. 
And so when talking about the people say, God, how have you loved us? And he says, Jacob, I loved and Esau, I hated. He's not just kind of pulling up two random guys from history and throwing them out there. But what he's saying is this, I have chosen you because of my love before the foundation of the world. So how could you say, I don't love you? I have chosen you based on my love from before the foundation of the world. And as evidence of this playing out, he points to the historical reality in which they find themselves. Because see, the people had been taken away, but they had returned. They had at this point rebuilt that the walls of Jerusalem were back up. The temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem. They had returned. But historically, when it came to Edom, who are the descendants of Esau, what it says here in this passage is true. The Babylonians also came and wiped them out and they never returned. They never came back to where they had lived. So when we see here that God chooses people, as, as the challenge, how have you loved this? God says, I've chosen you. It's a reminder of this, that God's love for us is unconditional. It's unconditional because his love doesn't depend on what we've done, but on who we are. Let me say that again. God's love for you doesn't depend on what you've done, but on who you are. When you are his, his love for you is an unconditional love that doesn't come and go based on what you've done. Just as he freely gave his unconditional love to Israel, even when it was undeserved, he freely gives that same love to you and to me, even when it is undeserved. And so in reminding Israel of its election, of its calling out by the love of God before they had done anything good or bad, what Paul, oh, excuse me, what Malachi is reminding them of this is that the fundamental reminder of God's love for us is our adoption into his family. It's that he chose us before the foundation of the world. When you remember who you are in Jesus, when you remember that you are his, that you are a child of God, you remember how much you are loved. When you remember who you are, you will remember how much you are loved. And so when we say, how have you loved us? We would be wise to go back and to look at how God has chosen us, adopted us into his family. And we will be reminded of his great love for us. It's an unconditional love. He, he gave us his love, not because of what we have done, but because of his great love for us. And so in asking the question, God responds by reminding them of their election and then in verse five, he says this, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. See, the third characteristic in this passage of God's love is that God's love is unlimited. God's love is unlimited. It goes beyond even the borders of Israel. See, the prophet sees, he looks forward to a day when God's people, instead of doubting God's love, would turn into praise of how great God's love is. He's looking forward to this day. And it's, a, it's an amazing phrase beyond the borders, beyond the land of Israel. They're complaining now about not seeing it. And God's saying, one day you're going to praise me because of how great, how expansive my love truly is. 
See, Israel may have thought we alone, because we are God's people, we, we alone are deserving of God's love. And we get God's love and no one else gets it. And the prophet is looking to a day where God's love goes way beyond that. And they rejoice in that fact. See, God's love is not limited to who you and I think deserve it. Israel might have said, well, we deserve God's love and the other people don't. But God's love is not limited to who you and I think deserve his love. There is a famous joke that, that a, a comedian actually originally from Chicago named Emo Phillips said many years ago. You may have heard it before, but I just thought it kind of helped me at least understand this, this idea. He said this, he said, once I saw a guy on a bridge about to jump and I said to him, don't do it. And he said, no one loves me. And he replied, but God loves you. Do you believe in God? The man said, yes. So I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? And he said, I'm a Christian. And I said, me too. Are you Protestant or Catholic? And he said, I'm Protestant. And I said, me too. What denomination? And he said, I'm Baptist. I said, me too. Are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? And he said, I'm Northern Baptist. And I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Northern Liberal Baptist. And he said, I'm Northern Conservative Baptist. And I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? He replied, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Regional Council of 1912. And he said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And I said, die, you heretic. And I pushed him off the bridge. See, it's a joke, right? But I think it cuts to the heart of so much of how Christians treat each other, right? The, the joke, obviously, is that there's had, they have almost everything in common, but there's one small thing that they don't, and they choose to divide and say, no, this is the group. This is who God loves. This is the true church and everyone else who doesn't line up with exactly my worldview, exactly my thinking on every single thing is wrong, and I am right. We so often, and I think this is just increasing in our worlds, we can think that God loves the people who are just like us, that those are the people that God loves. Or if God does love the people who vote different, who believe a few different things about minor issues, if he does love them, he doesn't love them quite as much as he loves us. But the reality is that God's love is not limited to who we think deserve it. God's love is expansive. God's love is unlimited. And so, so in the, the reminder here, they say, has God's love stopped? God, how have you loved us? And God says, just think about it. Think about it. My love for you has not stopped. In fact, I'm looking forward to a time where you will rejoice at how great my love is. And so in talking about spiritual apathy and addressing what's going on in the life of God's people, the prophet Malachi starts here with the love of God. Because he understands that the root of spiritual apathy is forgetting God's love. The root of spiritual apathy is forgetting God's love. When we forget what Jesus has done for us, how loved we are by him, then we start to drift 
we start to wander to and fro. See, the amazing thing is this, as followers of Jesus, God doesn't call us to just muster up within ourselves some great love for him through our own efforts. But the Bible says this in 1 John 4, it says that we love him because he first loved us. We have to get that first. We have to keep our focus on that first. And when we get how much he loved us, the love from our hearts then begins to respond and overflow back to God. See, the surest way in this new year, in 2021, the surest way to drift away from God is to forget how much he loves you. To not remind yourself regularly of what Jesus has done for you, of God's great care for you each and every day. But it's only when we have received God's love for us that we can then live in response to that, that we live out the life that God has for us. He starts here with the love for God, a proper realization of the love for God, because this spiritual apathy is ultimately a heart issue. Spiritual apathy is a heart issue. Because here's the thing, and he's going to get into this, so we're going to see this over the next several weeks, that the people were still doing the right religious things. But if their hearts were in the wrong place because their hearts were not receiving love from God, then none of the spiritual practices really mattered. Without the love from God in their lives, their spiritual practices ultimately amounted to nothing. See, if the measure of your spiritual life, of your spiritual health, is your activity— then you've missed it. See, the measure of our spiritual health is our love for God based on his love for us. So I just want to remind us tonight that God loves us. God loves you. God sent his own son, Jesus, to come to this earth to die on the cross in our place and for our sin when we should have been there. He's called us to himself before the foundation of the world when we had done nothing good or bad because he loved us. He's given everything to know us. His love for us is unchanging. And maybe you haven't sensed his love. Maybe you haven't felt his love in a long time. I just want to remind you tonight that God loves you. God loves you. And to avoid spiritual drift, to avoid spiritual apathy in our lives, we need to regularly go back to that fact. That no matter what we think, no matter what we even feel, we are loved by God. God, we do thank you that your love for us is unlimited, it's unchanging, and it's unconditional. God, we are so undeserving of your love. And we thank you that when there's nothing else in the world that we can hold on to, we can still hold on to that fact that we are loved by you. We pray all of these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.